Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. This is This Is Civity Radio Show, and I am Gina Bellaria, your host. Today, I am with uh, two amazing people. First, I am with Marty Swain, founder, trainer of cultural competence, and co-facilitator of an organization called Challenging Racism. It's a program through public schools in Arlington, Virginia, that engages parents and the community in conversations about race with the goal of helping all sides communicate and understand each other. And also joining us today is Palma Strand, co-founder of Civity, an organization working to get people to communicate across divides. And so welcome to you both, Marty and Palma. Hello. Glad to be here. (laughs) Great to be here. Great to have you. So first, uh, Marty, I'd like to talk with you. Tell me a little bit about challenging racism. I mean, beyond what I said, tell me about it. And then I want to know why you even why you did something like this. Uh, what it is is, is a, a series of conversations, about 10, two-and-a-half-hour conversations um, among parents who volunteer. So these are folks who are ready to try this um, on, on race and on all its implications. The context is that we have an achievement gap in the Arlington Public Schools that's very significant. Um, our kids of color, even though we are a system that spends 20000 bucks a year, our kids of color... Um, do not pass their SOLs at a pretty high rate. For example, sixth graders um, in the last set of tests, about 40% of the kids of color, Latino and African American in particular, did not pass their state standards of learning tests. And this has been true for some time, and the school system has had really an honest interest in publishing the data, and we've made some progress, but this is a persistent problem. And the idea of these conversations is to try to create a community in which people can talk about this problem, can talk about race, um, and can communicate with each other um, about how we can fix it, what needs to be done, what are the things that need to be changed. So that's kind of the genesis. That's how it started. Fair enough. Now, talking about racism, talking about what's going on, there have been so many things tried. Let's try this program, that program. Let's have students study in this way. Um, How did it come down to talking? Why are we not talking to each other? Um, Well, race is uncomfortable. Um, And I guess the, the basic argument of having the conversations is that um, both in the short run and in the long run, you know, for conversations today and over time, um, we're, we're going to produce a school system where every kid gets edu- educated to their complete potential if assumptions about expectations for kids of color are shared by everyone in the community. And the community demands that there's a good education for everyone, and teachers, in fact, have those expectations, and that that's a community where you can talk about race. Now we don't basically talk about race. It's the kind of thing where when the subject of race comes up, people leave the meeting, they leave the room, uh, they shut down. And um, our experience in doing this is that you can change that behavior, Um, that gradually over time, you know, we now have parents who, when the subject of race comes up in a PTA meeting, they don't leave. Wow. They don't fold. Um, when the subject of race um, comes up in, like, for example, facilities planning, we've had discussions about where we build schools, that there are people in that 
conversation now who are willing to talk about um, the ways in which um, race and issues that are related to that, many of which are historic, um, can can be faced and actually can be dealt with in in the context of a public conversation. That's incredible. That, that that's the goal. It it doesn't happen in a day. Right. Um, <laughs> the argument the argument of the conversations and my actual experiences is in them is that we take about 14 to 16 people. They're predominantly white. Um, there are some wonderful people of color who are willing to come <laughs> and help these white folks learn what they need to know. But it's predominantly conversations of white people. And after about four or five sessions, those people do show change. They show that they've had, they realize they have privilege. Uh, they realize that there's such a thing as institutional racism. They actually can see how it works in the public school system. And um, not everybody who comes, mm-hmm. but a significant percentage of those of those people. It's incredible that people will get up and leave the room. And, and I do want to talk about how you guys do what you do and how you make this happen. But mm-hmm. I want to go back to that moment where people initially leave the room. And, mm-hmm. and that's an incredible thing. And I realize that we're kind, we're kind of all aware of this in our society, but I want, to, I want to step back and be a little naive for a minute and just say, wow, people leave the room. What is it about racism and discussing race that makes people actually, perfectly nice, wonderful people actually get up and leave the room? Well, I think it's scary. And I think um, a lot of, this is a, you know, a quote unquote liberal white community um, and so we like to think of ourselves, and there are a lot of ways in which it's a very supportive community for people of color. You know, there's um, there's certainly a mixture among millennials here. We have one of the highest rates of millennials living in Arlington County of any jurisdiction in the United States, and they come because they feel comfortable, and there's a huge variety of them, you know, all different uh, races and ethnicities among that group of millennials. There's an old African-American community that's been here since pre-Civil War times. People are homeowners, very steady, stable community. So we have, you know, quite a range. And I think publicly the face of the county is, is very is very liberal. Mm-hmm. The other side of that, of course, is that we have, we're segregated. We're very segregated. The housing's very segregated. The schools are relatively segregated. And I think there's very few circumstances in which white people and people of color have an opportunity to interact with each other in circumstances where both people, both groups of people feel they can be honest with each other. I was going to add to that. I think people, I would think white people are just not practiced at this. You know, white parents a lot of times don't talk about race with their kids. And so, you know, those kids grow up to be parents and these issues come up and they don't have any context for talking about it. And so, of course, it's scary because it's like the big elephant in the room that you've always known is there, but nobody has ever sort of, you know, and you know that there's a possibility of getting zapped if you say something, you know, stupid or, and you don't want to hurt people. But, you know, so the people are just not practiced. And so it's very scary. Yeah. You know, they're wary. Yeah. And there's a bit and there's a great video on the Challenging Racism website, uh, which what is your website? That's what it's challengeracism.com. 
I forget. I can never remember if it's <laughs> org. I'm terrible. Challengeracism.org. <laughs> so there's an incredible video of some of the parents that you've worked with, and, and they yeah. said exactly what Palma just said, that, that mm-hmm. it can be you're scared of saying the wrong thing. I imagine in a community such as Arlington and many communities across the country, as you said yourself, Marty, that this is a community that does a lot of things to uh, help people that are disadvantaged or com- specifically the black community where you are. So when maybe all of a sudden they're told, well, there's more we can do and perhaps you you are part of the problem or you need to help be part of the solution, I can see an initial, but we are doing things. And 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 also that that paralysis of of um, oh my gosh what do we say um, so right. so Palma really quickly do you see that in your work on in other parts of the country people are afraid to say what they want to say and and how might you know and how how do you help people communicate without being afraid to talk well absolutely and I mean I'm I'm most of my time here in Omaha Nebraska and. Um, one of the, you know, one of the conversations that we have, I have conversations with community members um, in housing, in education, in, you know, in our own university, and, um, you know, people, people, there's a, there's an additional aspect here in the Midwest where people are kind of Midwestern nice. So in addition to having the kind of the regular, <laughs> I'm kind of scared to talk about these issues that I'm not, you know, I'm not really that familiar with. There's this like, well, and I really don't want to say anything that, you know you know, I want to be nice. That's kind of a, it's kind of the culture here. And, and so the, you know, this is a, it's, it's prevalent. um, It's prevalent all over. One of the things that I think is really impressive about the challenging racism work is that um, in addition to sort of providing a context for people to talk about this, you know, in a group, you know, the kind of groups that Marty, uh, that Marty leads is that they actually provide sort of skills for people. It's like, so now you've decided, you know, in this safe environment in the group, it's like we've had some practice talking about this with other white people, with some people of color. So now what are you going to do, like, in your life to make right. a difference? And that, mm-hmm. I think, is a really, really powerful aspect of the challenging racism work. Yeah, absolutely. So, Marty, in, in, your, in your work with these parents, how do you, like, tell me a little bit about how do you bring them from, I'm going to get up and leave the room, or I'm horrified and I can't handle this, can't to, cope, right. yeah, to the point right. where they're, they're sort of recognizing and ready to be part of the solution? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there are two, two stages here. Um, and, um, you know, this is, a, it's, it's, um, it's very interesting to me and challenging to have this conversation because um, I and Palma started this. We basically wrote the curriculum ourselves um, using materials that are used in the teacher training in the Arlington Public School System. So there are a lot of very tight parallels. But it's been, um, you know, a process of, um, of trial and error. And I've never really had to write down or think out precisely how this works. And so your questions of have pushed me uh, to think more about that. <laughs> and um, there, there are, so of course, whenever you get people together to do any kind of difficult conversation, you have to get people, the first session is, is really about getting them to know each other. And one of the pitches of this, these conversations from the very beginning has been the power of stories. And so we start with the stories of all the people in the room. And um, that is both makes people feel safe because they can talk about themselves. Everybody likes that. Mm-hmm. And also because the stories in the room are always interesting. You know, people's stories are always interesting. So that's step number one. Then there are really four major 
kind of areas of, um, and I won't say factual information because it's partly also experiences that we have, but uh, that that seem to be kind of transformative for people. One is just that uh, the Tatum Tatum book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? That Beverly focuses, Daniel Tatum, she's a psychologist. Yeah. Yeah, so that focuses, we use the first couple chapters, and they focus on really helping people get clear the difference between personal racism and institutional racism. And that's a hard hard place for white people because they come into the conversation often thinking it's talking about, you know, individual acts of bias or prejudice, which not that they're not bad, not that they don't drive people of color nuts, but that's really not the fundamental problem. Fundamental problem is institutional racism. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing that we work on is the ways in which um, people of color have been prevented from acquiring assets in the society. So I sort of feel like white people often have carried around in the back of their head this idea that people of color are really very nice folks, but the real real reason why they aren't where I am is because they just don't work hard enough. Um, and I think that comes out of the Protestant ethic. It comes out of a lot of places in our society, mm-hmm. the myth of meritocracy, all that stuff. So if you so we use race, the power of illusion, and we use a section on housing. It's very specific how you know people of color have been systematically screwed. Um, before and after the Second World War, and it continues to this day in the ways in which you can uh, accumulate assets, which, you know, creates an advantage to white people and disadvantage to people of color. And it's one of those major privileges of of, uh, white people. And then the third one is just thinking about how you're socialized to whiteness. Totally, you don't even realize it. Um, And that's a powerful idea that most people really haven't had an opportunity um, to think about at all. And the fourth one is racial microaggressions. Those are the kind of four pillars of this, these conversations. And racial microaggressions are just a, sometimes intentional but mostly unintentional ways that people of color are constantly invalidated in their normal lives, in their professional lives, all that sort of stuff. Oh, wow. Then what we do, you come to some point, and it really does happen, maybe the fourth or fifth session, many of the people in the group who are white will say, wow, I didn't know any of this stuff. <laughs> I didn't know, why didn't I know any of this stuff? How could I have been, you know, around here in this quote-unquote white liberal community all this long time and not know any of it? And then they start thinking about, you know, so what do you do next? Yeah. And that's and the two things there that we work on, and these are, you know, one of many different kinds of choices, I'm sure, but they're very practical. One is listening skills. So a lot of having difficult conversations about race is learning to listen to the other person. Really listen in the sense that you can put away the story that's in your head and you can say to them, gee, you know, tell me more. Uh, help me out here. You know, converse, it's kinds of conversations that lead to more conversation, that lead to potentially to understanding. And then the second thing is actually practicing difficult conversations. So we take a template from, it's on the web, Judy Ringer's uh, Four Steps to a Difficult Conversation. Mm -hmm. We brainstorm conversations that people, um, you know, might have had and they went badly (laughs) or or thought they should have had, but they didn't have because it was too scary. Um, And we practice them. We practice them in pairs and then we practice them in in the large group. So that by the end of the time that folks have been with us, which is 10 sessions, they have some confidence that that neighbor, last year I remember there's a guy who, who farms and he he has a neighbor who's just an outright blatant bigot. He t- 
talks mm. in a bigoted way about people of color all the time. And he said, it's been bothering me for the last five years. And I feel like maybe now I could try. I could start the conversation with this guy about why the way he talks is really um, bothersome to me. I don't think it's appropriate. I don't think it's true. Um, and so you try to get people to that point. Wow, that's that's incredible, and it must be such a great moment when they realize, oh my gosh, and and I, I so that must be an incredible moment for both you and them, and and then also the idea of bringing in historical documents and 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 government documents to sort of illustrate do, what's going yeah. on. I think that's a really brilliant idea because it's so hard to discuss, like you know these these sort of feeling not necessarily feelings i mean but you know i feel discriminated against well why well this well that can't be true and then bringing in actual documentation i mean that can help that can help anyone i think it really i think it really blows people away yeah i mean there's a level on which you need to get people need to think about this need, need you they have to connect with the heart so part of what we do is we also bring in parents mm -hmm. from the Arlington Public School System who are of color mm -hmm. to talk of their experiences and the experiences of their kids in the Arlington Public School System. And that really kind of hits you right there, you know. Yeah. Um, but then your head is important, too. Right. And, right. and that whole asset building stuff, which, you know, has to do also with veterans benefits. It's not only about FHA practices mm -hmm. and housing. There's so many ways in which people of color have been denied these um, this access to assets that um, and there's there's really no and then the other thing we do is we we look at how that's played out in Arlington right I produce the segregated housing that we have yeah. and the choices that people had and really white people in a very fundamental way no matter what their politics they live in a bubble um, and that bubble is is both privilege and, and opportunity but then it also means they're cut off. So I'm going to take a quick break. I'm so loving this conversation. But we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, um, Palma, I want to talk to you a little bit about how this mirrors what Civity is doing. And then, uh, Marty, I want to delve into some more stories of people that you've worked with. So we're going to take a quick break here, and we will be back in just a moment. What does freedom of speech mean to me? Uh, I don't know. I've never really thought about it speak out against the majority. It means I can express my express opinion, my freely. opinion freely. freely. It's the American it's dream. The American it's dream. the First Amendment. It means everyone, everyone has, has a voice. voice. I guess freedom of speech is more than a right. It's a responsibility. A message from the National Association of Broadcasters, Education Foundation, and this station. The First Amendment reads, My name's Rachel, and in eight years, I'll be an alcoholic. Kids who drink before age 15 are five times more likely to have alcohol problems when they're adults. I'll start drinking in middle school, and I'll do some things I don't really want to do. So by the time my parents talk to me about it, alcohol won't be my only problem. So start talking before they start drinking. To learn more, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and this station. Welcome back to This is Civity Radio. I am Gina Valeria, and I am here today with Marty Swain of Challenge Racism and Palma Strand of Civity. So uh, I would love to talk a little bit about um, the Civity work and how it mirrors or, or you know, what mirrors uh, what's going on with Challenge Racism and why it's important to do this, not just with parents, but also with the wider community. So Palma, if you would be uh, so Absolutely. kind. Absolutely. Yeah, well, the 
inclusivity is about people connecting authentically, you know, across or through differences. And, you know, one of those big differences in our society is race. And so, you know, the, the work that Marty does, where which is about people connecting authentically, you know, with respect and empathy through difference, in this case, the difference being race, is building civity. It's all about civity. I think that the other thing that is really exciting, and this is something that, um, that Marty and I have been talking about, you know, Marty said that she does, uh, you know, the, the listening and the, um, the difficult conversations work, but that, you know, there's lots of ways in which people can kind of build these relationships, these kind of cross-racial relationships, which haven't always been the easiest, you know, where we sit in segregated neighborhoods, you know, we go to segregated faith communities, like we don't always have the opportunity to develop those relationships. And, and, you know, having the difficult conversations, which often are a situation where something bad has happened, it's like, you know, somebody says something, you know, racist or terrible or, you know, that's very dismissive in some way. And, and, you know, this is often true of white people. It's like, so what do I say in that situation? Difficult conversations give you the kind of tools to go back to that person and say, so I was a little uncomfortable by what you said. What did, you know, what did you mean by that? Or, you know, but civity conversations, which is, which is kind of what, what civity has been working on developing and offering are, are not, reacting to a terrible situation, they're, they're saying, you know, I actually want to reach out to people who are different, including people who are, a, you know, a different racial group than I am, and, and develop a relationship with them in a positive way. But, but I'm a little scared because I'm kind of used to being in my own comfort zone. How do I reach out to somebody who is different in a way that isn't like, well, I want to be, you know, best of friends, but, but, it, but is also authentic and kind of from the heart. And that civity work is, you know, and particularly the civity conversations is another way of extending this challenging racism work, as well as conversations across other divides. Absolutely. So in one sense, in challenge racism or challenging racism, parents are may or may not be aware of where what they need to learn or how they need to reorient themselves. With civity, there's probably a little bit greater awareness and there's a desire to communicate and but still people need the tools and the training and and the roadmaps to be able to do this because it is a challenge it's really hard to talk to someone that you're either afraid of or you don't want to say the wrong thing or you don't understand or they're they're on the other side of of an issue um we uh, we that right now there's a situation here in the Bay Area, uh, uh, either last year or the year before at San Jose State, there was a uh, situation where a couple roommates were basically kind of terrorizing their African-American roommate. And they called him, mm. you know, racially inappropriate names. They actually put a bike chain around his neck. It was uh, so oh, those kids are on trial right now. And um, the D.A. in 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 uh, the South Bay decided to treat this as a misdemeanor rather than a felony, and a lot of people were quite uh, upset by that. And and so just the idea of you know is it boys will be boys or is it a problem? And without having that conversation to really unpack it, it's it's difficult for everybody to understand you know whether it's one or the other. And and so in in this case they're being tried, but it's a misdemeanor. Um, so so um, Marty, when you're talking with parents and the community uh, about these things. Uh, tell me a couple specific moments where you had a parent who was really resistant to these ideas and then all of a sudden it kind of opened up for them. Can you think of a specific moment where that happened? 
one recent one was, um, and this is after a the material about um, assets, and also reading. Of course, we read the classic Macintosh piece, um, unpacking uh, the white backpack, and we read um, one or two other things that have to do with white privilege. And so there was an individual in the in the group who said. Um, I I just never realized this. I didn't realize that I had these privileges. And um, I can see that in my life, although I worked hard, I didn't work as hard as people of color to get to the same place. I had help. You know, I had help from my family. And she said, now, I've come to this point, and it just makes me, it makes me very, I think the word she used was sad, and it makes me uncomfortable, and um, it makes me a little guilty. And um, then there was, you know, silence in the room for a little bit, and one of the other people in the group who is of color said, uh, just saying that you know that you have privilege, that's a big step, uh, that you took that step, that's very important. And another person said, um, you know, these are things you're going to have to just, you have to work through this over time. And another person said, um, you know, white privilege is not a, um, it's not a descriptor of character. It's a, description of what is. And, um, you know, I think for the, all the people that were in the room that particular time, um, that was a very powerful conversation, both for the white person who had come to this realization about privilege and for the responses that the people of color in the room provided. And uh, I guess one other observation that one of the white people in the room made was, Guild is really not a place to stay. <laughs> Guild is worth about a minute's worth of thinking about, and then you move on. Because clearly what you want to think about is what you do next. Well, that's a powerful moment. It's not uh, It's not a definition of your character. It's just what is. And I, I, yeah. I, I, that's powerful. And I, I'm not quite sure that in our national psyche we understand that. And, and so that that was said in, in this room of people who are trying to come to, trying to wrestle with this is pretty profound. Well, the other thing I wanted to say is that when we started these conversations, in all honesty, so this is a little more than 10 years ago now, um, I mean, speaking for myself, um, I myself wasn't quite clear about what next steps would be, you know, beyond the practicing and difficult conversations and beyond um, practicing and listening, the structured listening, practicing and forcing people to slow down their listening so you really focus on the person who is talking to you. Those are powerful things that you can use in any area of your life. But how, how, where this would go next, you know, on the subject of race in Arlington, um, I had ideas, but I, I wasn't sure exactly where it would go. Well, out of the group itself, about four years ago, <clears throat> one group of people near the end of the group said, so I'm sorry, but this is not the end. <laughs> they were a very, a very, um, a very, um, a very feisty and uh, interesting and committed group of people in this group at a particular elementary school. And they are the people who said, now, what are we going to do? 
and they put themselves together, a group of five, uh, I don't know, maybe might have been eight people their first session. All I did was give them the contact information with previous alumni. And uh, they're the people who put up that site that you saw, Mm -hmm. the Challenge Racism site. One of them created the site. Uh, One of them is a videographer, and she produced the video. Um, Another person helped schedule everyone. I think they uh, even they, created the name, didn't they, Marty? I mean, it wasn't create, even really didn't have no, a name did. like this before. Yeah, no, they created the name, and they um, and they decided on their first task, which was recruitment. You yeah. know, get more people into these conversations. So within a year, they had doubled the number of groups, and they, you know, uh, because of their recruitment, they've gotten us so that we have waiting lists all the time. Now they've moved beyond that, so they now have a group of alumni and are in the process of, of uh, putting that together. Um, and they, they four times a year, they put together events. Uh, the last one was on Black Lives Matter. Um, and they have, you know, they, um, well, one of the people in this group of those alumni is running for the school board mm-hmm. um, in this election. A previous alumni of the conversations, um, James Lander, is on the school board. He ran uh, and won. And then there's a uh, Tanya Talento is the person who's running now. Who I'm 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 not saying that the only reason why she ran is because she was in these conversations, um, because she came to the group uh, a very skilled uh, storyteller and has a lot of skills in facilitation. But she um, she certainly um, was a very engaged participant in that group and has is now running for the school board. And there are quite a few people who are. Uh, part and her platform is getting rid of the achievement gap, and she's very specific. You know, right, she has right. a very specific discussion about what conversations on race mean, and she's been in a number of county circumstances where she's had to have these kinds of conversations. And there's some other people sprinkled around, you know, <laughs> in county bo- in county either school system or county committees, mm-hmm. uh, where they have an opportunity when they feel they can, and it's a, useful. To say, wait a minute here. <laughs> you know, uh, let's look at this from the point of view of somebody else who's not in the room. And um, so, I think that the actions that follow from these conversations have this range. I personally feel the personal actions that you take as an individual are very powerful, even if it's only talking with your relatives at Thanksgiving, because what you do is you create an environment in which you're, that's what your children see. Your children become comfortable talking about race, and they become comfortable having respectful conversations about difference with a lot of other kinds of people. And I mean, that's kind of a foundational skill to what Paul was talking about um, in civity, is being able to, you know, not leave the room, really, to stay in the room, to participate. Well, and to, and to be in the place of being different. I mean, this is something yes. that we just aren't really... I mean, again, we're not really practiced in, you know, when you get, when you meet somebody, you're always looking for what, the ways in which you're similar. And, you know, you kind of avoid, it's like, okay, so I can see the ways or I kind of discover the ways in which we're different. And so we won't go there because that's not the comfortable place to be. So we'll look for the things that make us similar. And one of the things that, you know, the challenging racism work does, which is, which is what civity is all about, is about saying, you know, our differences are really valuable, actually. Yes. You know, our different life experiences are really valuable. And if we never go there, then we never explore the potential creativity between our differences. We never explore the potential 
you know, sort of what each one has to offer. And we, and we never, you know, ultimately it's kind of ironic, but we never sort of go to that place of, okay, so even though you're really different, <laughs> because I kind of have heard your story, I kind of understand you. So, so yes. there, there is this weird way in which difference also brings you back to right. this kind of elemental human, yeah, okay, so you went to a totally different place, but I kind of understand the experiences by how you got there. Exactly, and that's the brilliance in telling stories, is that even if a story yeah. is totally different, you, you can relate to it. And I think about this as an actor when I'm on stage. I mean, I may never have, you know, done crazy drugs or tried to, you know, I, there are a lot of things I've never mm-hmm. done. I've got to find maybe the um, the place inside me where I can make that look real on stage, and and there's there are there are emotions and connections and things we've gone through that we can connect with and relate to each other, even if it's not the same experience, even if we're totally different. Right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that can yeah. weave people it's together. So powerful. Stories connect people, and not, it isn't only that they're immediately powerful; it's that you always remember them. I was in a group last week where we had had the week two weeks previous there had been an African American parent talking about his son and the conversations that he has with his son and uh, who's now a teenager and the parent who's a white male parent who was in this group said when he was just reflecting on the the time before that we'd met he said you know every single morning when I get up and I see uh, my, uh, my son go off to school. His son's a little younger, but still, my son go off to school. I think about that story I heard. And I think about the differences between us in the way I send off my son and the way he sends off his son. And, of course, this guy who's talking about this in our country, he'll never forget it. Not for the rest of his life will he right. forget that story. Right. And the story probably took the person who was telling it, it probably took him, what, five, ten minutes to tell. Wow. But yeah. it will be with it will be with the white guy, the white father, forever. It's yeah. very powerful. Very powerful. And and then and then you know those stories and the work that you're doing. I, I want to go back again to something you said a, a few minutes ago. The idea that people who have. Uh, gone through your workshop and have been changed and have and have embraced this idea are now out are not now out but are also out in the community and isn't that the true definition of you know of civity work of power and of of change is to is to get into those government positions and to get in and to be talking in the community and to be talking inside your house and to really start start shifting the conversation towards something that's a little bit more helpful for the community even if you're educating even even if people have no idea idea but when you are on a school board or in, on a city council or working somewhere then then you actually have a place where you can you can impact policy which is really exciting and that your work is contributing to that in some way is is just incredible yes it's it's really important but i just have to say i think i mean i all of that is wonderful I mean, I think that the people who go through these conversations, you know, whether they're the challenging racism conversations, the civity conversations, I think they have similar effects in a lot of ways. You know, even if you never go and become a big policymaker, you know, it's like if, if, if in every place that you are, you know, in your job, in your, you know, in your neighborhood, when, when you sort of kind of are on the watch for comments and you, you know, when issues aren't raised and you, you feel comfortable raising them, you know, right. that ripples out in ways that are, um, 
you know, just immensely, immensely powerful. Absolutely. I okay. wanted to add to that that one of the things that Palma has both written about and we often talk about is the fact that institutional racism, it's really important for people to understand that it exists and how it works and how it works in a school system and other places. But the other side of it is institutional racism is made up of people. People are institutions. That's true. As my boss used to say, don't complain about the system because we're it. We are the <laughs> we're system. It. Yeah. True. And, and, and so um, when a person um, who comes to some conscience, consciousness about racism and how it works and white privilege and how that works is inside the system, you know, the classic example kind of in school systems is the conversation about the gifted and talented program, you know, who, who's in and who's not in. And um, a person who's aware, all they have to do is say, gee, Look at all these applications we have here. Mm-hmm. I don't see one application that comes from a person with a Latin surname right. or that comes from a kid who we know to be African-American. And what's going on there? Right, right. Very true. And there you are. You know, because <laughs> everybody, else in the, yeah, all, everybody else in the room, not necessarily intentionally or in mm-hmm. some malicious sense, but because that's the way bureaucracies work. They are not conscious of this. Right. But if you are a person who is conscious, it's a little like the lever and the big rock, then you're the lever because you are poking at the place where there's a possible change. So you're one person, but you could affect uh, not only that people, the 15 people making recommendations in that room, but, you know, all the kids who are involved. So it's easy to underestimate the power of an individual. Absolutely. Um, But the fact is that an individual who takes advantage of the place of leverage that they have at work, in their family, in social circumstances, is potentially incredibly powerful. Absolutely. Right. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) We're going to take a short break here. And then um, when we come back, we're going to talk more about um, about challenging racism and civity. Stand by. Nothing inspires imagination like reading. And it's never too early to start reading to your children. When you open a book, you can explore new worlds like the ones in the Chronicles of Narnia. Everything you see is Narnia. Impossible. You can make new friends, discover amazing adventures, and most of all, have fun. Are you prepared for what awaits you? To find out more about the wonders of reading, you can visit the Library of Congress website at www.loc.gov. There, you can learn more about books, play fun games, discover cool facts, and so much more. You can log on to www.loc.gov and let your journey begin. This message has been brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. We've been talking a lot about the Caucasian people in the room or the people who have the privilege or the power of position in a community. I want to talk a little bit about the the people of color in a room or the people who have the disadvantaged position. When, um, and I'll, I'll go to Marty first, when you're sitting in this room with this group of people who haven't been able to talk with each other uh, yet and they're starting to have this conversation on some level, the person of color may have developed a knee-jerk reaction when 
the some of the Caucasian parents in the video I watched said, "I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. Uh, I, you know, I don't. I, I want to help, but I'm not sure how to do it. Uh, how how do you help, or do you at all help the people of color in the room be open to this? Because there, it could be that they're just like, yeah, I've had enough, and I don't want to hear it anymore. The the c- circumstance that you describe is certainly very real for people who of color who are in these groups. Uh, first of all, um, let's let's just recognize that they are folks in the main, they're volunteers, who are um, have already um, some willingness to engage in conversations with clueless white people, and so they've they have. Um, um, maybe I should say steeled themselves uh, to listen to a certain amount of this sort of thing um, and, and comment, of course, uh, and participate in a very direct way. Um, I've learned over time uh, to try to be uh, more overt in supporting them and encouraging them and just thanking them for the fact that they come mm-hmm. when they tell stories and when they participate. Um and that's 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 a that's an important job of a facilitator. I mean, I do think it's important that these be facilitated conversations. I'm not saying that I always get it right, but you know that's part of the intention. Then the other thing, there are a couple of other things. One is that there are people of color who come and they leave for one of two reasons. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen, and they're generally speaking very candid about it. One is, you know. Um, this one happened a couple years ago. A person of color said to me, after about three times, she said, part of the reason why I came was I really was interested in in participating in conversations with white people about race because I think it's important. Uh, But she said, I discovered that they just say such awful things. Mm. And they're so far away from my understanding of race, and it just wears me out too much. I can't tolerate it. Yeah. And of course, I said, you know, you give us a gift to come in the first place. And so, if you, if for you personally, it's not going to be a positive experience, then I can't say don't stay. I mean, you need to decide this for yourself. Um, and then another reason that uh, sometimes people of color have trouble with these conversations is that the name challenge racism for some people means that what we're going to be doing is making a list of the things that are wrong with the school system that need to be challenged right now. And I understand that. I understand why people of color, particularly parents in the school system, would be at that point because most of them have some experiences that are bothering them right now, you know, about their kids in the Arlington Public Schools, and they want to talk about those. And um, uh, recently, you know, one person said to me, well, this seems to me like this is a conversation for white people. And I said, well... You know, it is in a way, <laughs> because mm. white people aren't ready to go make that list um, because they don't they don't understand really the the experiences from which you, as an African American or you know a, a parent of color Latino, um, sees what happens in the school system. They need a little work before they're at that point. You know, before they're ready to make the list. And um, you know, I invite them to join the alumni group. I tell them about the alumni group. Um, I invite them to stick it out because they're very helpful. You know, the presence of the story of a person in the room who's of color, no matter what the variation of their story, is very powerful for the folks who are there who don't know that story. But it's a gift that people of color give. 
and um, if this pla- isn't the place where they're going to satisfy what they need, uh, you know, which is a much more activist, immediate kind of uh, getting into the fray in the school system, um, then it's not worth their time. So um, I guess those are, there are really those, all that different variation in the ways that people of color um participate in these groups. Yeah, and it um, is wonderful that they are that they are participating and and I know that so many people want there to be better communication, but you make a great point in in that, you know, if if you've been dealing with this for your whole life and that might be 20, 25, 30, 40, 50 years, you are ready to take action, you're ready to move and to have to sort of subsume that again for the dominant culture has has got to be frustrating for people. And so you're I love the way you say that it is a gift that they come and they share and oh, they it's a gift. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I hope that by the time I, I I have no question in my mind that by the time we've done these conversations, the people who are white, who are of the dominant culture in, in these conversations, recognize mm-hmm. what a gift they've gotten as as a as as a result of participating from those folks in the room who have a different story to tell. Um, And and so I think that has been the foundation, really, of some of these alumni activities is those relationships that were built up um, in the group over time. Um, But those those things have to happen organically. One can't organize them or plan them, Mm -hmm. and when they happen, it's wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so um, I we have uh, just a few minutes left, and so I want to touch on sort of the wider society that we live in, um, and and I'm going to try to bring a lot into the last three minutes. But you know, we're having these conversations, and these are conversations that have not been necessarily adeptly had at a more uh, national level. We've got right. Um, right. We've got you know this very strange and some an odd and somewhat frightening presidential race going on uh from my mm-hmm. lens and um mm-hmm. and we've got uh all of a sudden we're seeing videos now of these really horrendous situations between officers and black suspects or black people that are being right. treated as suspects and you know in San Francisco uh, one of the most recent situations was a guy named Mario Woods who was wielding a knife and um, was shot 21 times, I believe, by police officers. And it turns out tw- 19 of those shots were in the back. Um, and so there's a call for the community, a call from the community to have the chief step down. And to them, the chief stepping down is a symbol. And other people are saying that that's not going to do a thing. The chief actually wants to help just because this happened on his watch doesn't mean you know like he can actually help so there's this interesting like what's the symbolism versus what's the real solution uh so i guess what what i want both of you to comment on maybe we could have uh, palma and then marty discuss you know how do you how do we take these conversations up how do we scale them up or can we do we just need to go you know 10 to 12 people by 10 to 12 people palma Yeah, I mean, I, you know, whenever they talk about a national conversation on race, I think that, uh, you know, I I think you have to start intimate because because it's stories and and because people are uncomfortable telling those stories, you know, certainly from where we are, most people are uncomfortable telling those stories, but also hearing those stories, except in those small circles and you think well okay so that's a herculean task to work up to a national conversation <laughs> right go 10 to 10 by 12 people you know at a time 
but but I you know I th- I think that that's you know what what Marty was talking about with with kind of the leveraging. I think that you know every person in that group who becomes you know more comfortable having these conversations spreads that to all the you know all the contexts that they um, that they operate in and and I you know I think that that having a national conversation on race is going to take ha- creating a culture where we can talk about race, which, which to me is a, you know, it's a person by person thing and you don't have to get every person, but, but you, it is a, it is a heart to heart. Uh, it's a heart to heart person to person kind of an enterprise. I, 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 I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking what I would think if something like what you described in San Francisco happened here in Arlington. I mean, we've been fortunate and we haven't had, uh, anything at that level happen here. Um, Although there have been, there's one case in Fairfax County, which is very disturbing, uh, that's an, a comparable sort of thing from my perspective. And if, I, if that happened here, I'm, I'm wondering if we couldn't, that one of our requirements of our leadership, um, our leadership group, so the, the county board, the school board, uh, and maybe, you know, people from um, the affected community, if in fact, this included African Americans, whatever the incident was. If they couldn't be, if if one of our requirements wouldn't be, just we'll have a conversation, <laughs> make them do it. Yeah, make them do yeah. it. You know, that that be part of our our ten point platform. You know, for change in the police department or change wherever this, there's this institutional out of controlness. Mm-hmm. You know, about people of color that they have to have these conversations about race. And and they and they have to take action as a result of them. Yeah. You know that they they do them. They they engage with each other. They commit the amount of time. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm th- I'm thinking out loud. Sure, sure. But I, I I think if that happened here, that would be I would put that on my poster. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. You, know, you you guys need you you guys need to get with the program here. You need to be talk about race. Yeah, absolutely. Let's bring these let's bring these conversation programs to our our police, our leaders. Absolutely. Um, we yeah. are we are just out of time, and so I want to thank you both so much, Marty Swain, founder, trainer of cultural competence, and co-facilitator of challenging racism. Uh, program through public schools in Arlington that gets parents to talk about issues of race and move forward. And Palma Strand, a co-founder of Civity. My name is Gina Valeria. You've been listening to This is Civity Radio. Have a wonderful day. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 